Well, and welcome to the program. It's a real privilege and pleasure to welcome Father Robert Spitzer, wonderful Jesuit priest and uh, someone that I've known for, I don't know, probably 20 years, Father. Yeah, it's great yeah. to have you on. Uh, good to be on again, Dr. Kurt. Yeah, this is this is great. So, Father, I, uh, I've got 10 interesting questions to ask you in the course of our interview. So Very good. get ready. And folks, Father does not know what these questions are. So get ready. You don't All seem right. that nervous, Father. You don't no. seem that nervous. <laughs> Not so much. I've heard a lot of questions before, but maybe these will be unique. <laughs> nice. Nice. Okay. Well, let's let's start off with the first one. So I have lots of guests on my program. And uh, let me say it this way. I'm rarely, if ever, intimidated by the guest. <laughs> Feeling like, oh, goodness, this guest is going to really put keep me on my toes or stretch me and and make me be attentive to every single word that I say. And I said that you're number one on my list. Uh, oh, dear. The most, the most intimidating <laughs> guests that I, and it's not that you're not friendly, Father. It's that you're so smart. You're, you're so erudite that uh, every word you're like, yeah, I wouldn't have used that word. So, Father, here's my question. <laughs> okay. Who is, when you think about the different, uh, you know, dialogues, debates, interviews, encounters that you've had in your long and illustrious career of mm -hmm. doing public teaching, conversations, et cetera. Who would you say is the most challenging uh, interview or challenging debate dialogue you've ever had? Well, um, you know, there have been a few. Uh, you know, there was in the Larry King show, I did uh, have a animated discussion with Stephen Hawking and Leonard Mladenov and Deepak Chopra about um, the universe and the existence of God. And that was a good one. Um, I mean, it was animated. It wasn't um, uh, overly challenging, but it, it did have a, a lot of, you know, uh, a good technical uh, dimensions. And at the same time, a lot of good um, opportunity for the theistic uh, point of view to be represented well and intellectually. Um, I had a very interesting debate with a fellow by the name of Dr. Bybeck on the Today Show. It was a, a debate, and this is way back, you know, uh, um, with um, uh, the Seattle Initiative uh, for um, euthanasia, active euthanasia, but physician-assisted suicide is what we call it now. And um, and so that uh, that was a really good animated debate. Uh, uh, you know, discussion. Uh, uh, definitely, I've had some good, uh, uh, you know, discussions on the History Channel, and a lot of good discussions as well on uh, um, Closer to the Light, an NPR program. Um, so, um, all very good interviews with very uh, good people. I think at the end of the day, though, uh, um, you know, theism or the pro-life position, I, I hope, was represented well by me. But as I say, I'm not the best judge of my performance. <laughs> well, Father, I can say every time I've ever seen you, you do an amazing job of speaking the truth with clarity and charity. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find 
uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. That's uh, Father Robert Spitzer joining me today on the program. And uh, Father, as you know, he's the founder and uh, in charge of the Magis Center uh, for Faith and Reason. And um, we'll talk more about the important work that the Magis Center is doing, Father. Uh, just one of the things that when you think about a debate in engaging an interlocutor, I think mm-hmm. of the the spirit of the Summa and St. Yeah. Thomas Aquinas, who would mm-hmm. raise the questions in the most challenging form rather than yep. the sort of snarky gotcha type of forms yeah. of questions. Yeah. Who would you say does a good job of asking um, the, uh, the the challenging question in the, in the most profound way, in the most challenging way, in a way that St. Thomas Aquinas would appreciate? Oh, gee, um, uh, that's hard to say. I think a lot of people, um, yeah, there are some good snarky ones out there, but uh well, oh, for gosh. instance, let me let me ask it to yeah. you this way, Father. So let's get yeah. away from the person and let's get to the argument. So when people say, "Oh, there's no evidence for the existence of God in in the visible world around us," or or yeah. when they say that the universe doesn't have this orientation towards a sense that it was uh, created for the sake of the Earth being as it is, where it is, etc., what would be an example of someone who is asking that question in a very like sincere and profound way, looking at the evidence that they see around them? Well, I think you know um, most of the time those very sincere people um, are kind of caught in the current age, right? This is there's a lot of information out there about fine tuning coincidences, right? That the universe is profoundly fine-tuned for life um, and uh, suggestive um, of an intelligence that has uh, certainly manifested the, um, you know, uh, or at least, let's say, tipped the scales in the direction of life when the probabilities, purely and simply, would be... definitely not in favor of life as a natural or pure chance occurrence. And so there's a lot of arguments here, but a lot of people are very worried about the multipers. And I think that, um, you know, that argument, sincere people um, up until about uh, 2018 um, really believe that an infinite multiverse might be a possibility and that would explain all the, you know, does, with an infinite number of possible universes in an infinite, you know, eternal uh, amount of time, why anything could happen, even something that's 10 raised to the 10 raised to the 123 to 1 against. Eventually, you know, some universe somewhere could do that amidst an infinite number of universes. And I think there were people who really believed in this uh, fractally expanding infinite universe. But then in 2018, you know, old Stephen Hawking came along, along with uh, uh, Thomas Hertog. Uh, and in his last uh, um, scientific paper in the Journal of High Energy Physics, Hawking basically denied uh, the possibility that our universe could have um, arisen out of a fractal multiverse. In fact, he limited, um, he said, if there is a multiverse, um, the multiverse that could generate us would have to be a multiverse with very few bubble universes 
most of which would be like ours, and such a multiverse would have to have a limit to inflation in the past. So it would have to have a beginning. Well, once Hawking and Hertog said that and joined forces with people like Thomas Banks and others, uh, the infinite multiverse, uh, well, uh, it almost has become a thing of the past. And now if you do have a multiverse and let's suppose it fits uh, the explanatory requirements of Hawking and Hertog, well, then those bubble universes would be like ours, and there'd be very few of them, and there'd be a beginning. Well, now these 10 to the 10 to the 123 to 1, which is the odds of our low entropy occurring in, the, in our universe by pure chance, that's like the same odds as a monkey typing the entire corpus of Shakespeare um, by random tapping of the keys in a single try. I mean, that's uh, the odds of that happening are, of course, very improbable, exceedingly, exceedingly improbable. And so how are you going to do that with a limited number of bubble universes? The answer is, you know, very few bubble universes. You're not. I mean, the, the, the fine-tuning question is now right back in people's faces. And that, you know, I mean, there's a reason why, you know, the, the number of scientists overall, according to the last Pew survey of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, um, the last Pew survey said that uh, 51% of scientists overall are uh, theists, um, that is to say, they believe in God or in some kind of a higher supernatural uh, power. Okay, so that's 51%. But if you look at the young scientists, the 40 and under statistic, that is 66% of young scientists are believers in God, with only about 15% uh, or so being um, agnostics and 15% being atheists. That puts... The, the, uh, the, the light decidedly in favor of theism over atheism, certainly. And, um, you know, if you even if you combine agnostics with atheists, you know, it's a super majority. And so uh, of young scientists. So there's obviously a reason for the shift in the time of Francis Collins, of course, uh, who's the head of the Genome Project. He um, uh, right now, but he's very much a believer in God. He, uh, um, you know, said, oh, this is a, you know, in his book, you know, the, uh, the handwriting of God or the language of God. Uh, he was talking about the, uh, you know, DNA. Uh, in that book, he did a little poll, and I think it was 46% of scientists were theists at that time. Uh, today, um, you know, that's gone up another 5% to 51%. And only 41% of scientists overall are agnostics or atheists. So uh, it's pretty clear, um, you know, that uh, the trend is moving in the direction, uh, at least in the scientific community, um, uh, it's moving in the direction of theism. And this is a good Pew survey of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. So it, that's a very large, uh, well-representative uh, rep represented. Uh, organization. So I, uh, you know, th the trends are shifting. And the reason is, is not just people like Stephen Hawking, undermining um, the multiverse, you know, the infinite multiverse, but um, 
also a lot of younger scientists just coming, like Luke Barnes, who published, you know, Fortunate Universe, et cetera. Uh, they're just making themselves and their opinions. They're just putting it right out there. And uh, so uh, I think uh, we live in a world where, you know, maybe the scientists and the engineers are decidedly moving in favor of theism. Uh, oddly enough, the um, the arts, you know, the, you know, uh, you know, like the College of Arts and Sciences, et cetera, uh, not sciences, but the, you know, the, the liberal arts and the humanities community is moving away from theism. And so uh, we've got this kind of strange rift, but uh, but make no mistake about it. The scientists are going pro uh, theism. Um, and um, even though there's a, you know, in the humanities, you know, a shift toward, uh, uh, you know, um, agnosticism and atheism, unbelief. Uh, it certainly isn't any rational argument. Uh, you know, it's not a scientific argument. It's not a logical argument. Um, basically, these are emotive arguments and preferences, and and they're basically coming out of uh, social theories, uh, and many of them are Marxist social theories or critical, um, you know, um, uh, theories or uh, deconstructionist uh, theories. And all of them, in my opinion, are the height of irrationality. So anyway, I'll just leave it at that. And uh, so I think the rationalists are, and the, the, um, the rational argumentation, the scientists are making a fine showing uh, for theism. I think uh, those people who disengage themselves and even want to deconstruct themselves out of existence are moving and well if they can deconstruct themselves out of existence why not god mm -hmm. father spitzer that's a fa i didn't know that. It's a fascinating uh survey mm -hmm. that the results of that to yeah. think about the way in which scientists are moving towards uh the arguments that are rooted in in reason in authentic reason seeing evidence for mm -hmm. for god or for a creator in in the world around them you think of the, yeah. the we always hear about sort of the scholarly pressures to suppress those kinds of beliefs but i think that one mm -hmm. of the things that can happen is that um that the general populace sort of the popular opinion is well the scientists have already agreed that and they speak as if there is a a consensus that is uh, almost unquestioned that the idea that that there is a god is something that doesn't require uh, requ only requires faith that you don't have the rational evidence for it i think that uh, one of the um one of the popular arguments that um, is often stated is the world, the universe is so big. And as we see how large this universe is, how can the earth be special at all? And so that idea of the, the, you know, the grandeur of the universe diminishes the specialness of the earth. Well, the specialness of the earth doesn't come from its position. I mean, that's, that would be silly. Uh, God, you know, he chose, after all, little Bethlehem and little Israel and a stable. So God wasn't worried about grandeur of position. Um, but he did create a special creature on the earth that we have not yet found in any significant way anywhere else. Now, I know there are a lot of people out there who believe in intelligent aliens. That may be true. It may not be true. I, I, I have yet to see convincing evidence. I've heard lots of rumors, 
lots of spacecraft that have appeared, things of this nature. I have nothing against aliens and intelligent aliens in principle, because I know if they're intelligent like us, uh, they would have to have a soul like ours. And if they had a soul like ours, I know one thing, it didn't arise out of an evolutionary process. That soul came from a special creation of God himself, the only transcendent transphysical cause uh, out there that's in the creation business. And there are very good proofs of that. But the, uh, the point that I'm trying to make is, uh, you know, even though people will say that, you know, um, I think the specialness of the earth comes in the fact that right here, God made, right? It's, it's kind of in a, you know, uh, it's not in a central position um, in our galaxy. And indeed it couldn't be because there's a black hole situated in the middle of our galaxy, which would be disastrous for us to be in. And our galaxy isn't at the center of the universe. Um, we don't, you know, look at a center in that way. Um, and I just think, you know, we got to just take our ourselves away from this idea that position equals, you know, grandeur, that all we got to do is look at ourselves. All we have to do is look at the fact that we have a desire for perfect truth and perfect love and perfect beauty and perfect goodness and perfect being. I mean, where did we get these desires without some tacit awareness of what perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and being would be like? And, and you know, where did we get that from? If not God, a transphysical cause speaking within our very souls, uh, and the souls that he created. And, and, you know, you look at rationality. I got a brand new book coming out um, uh, in um, uh, fall um, of next year with uh, Ignatius Press called Science at the Doorstep to God. And in there, I explain the, the uniqueness of the human soul in terms of self-consciousness, as well as rationality. And yes, there are traditional arguments that establish this very nicely, but there are also contemporary ones. Robert Berwick and Noam Chomsky's recent book uh, from MIT Press, you know, that called Why Only Us, looking at, you know, human syntactical um, the, the requirements of human syntax and human syntactical formulations um, in light of the research of Herbert Terrace, et cetera, and coming to the point, well, well I don't think we can do this um, only with physical processes. Uh, we, we're going to have to find some explanation of syntactical language beyond what physical processes in their linearity and even in their hierarchical linearity can explain. And this is a problem for um, uh, so many uh, materialistic arguments. So I think there's very good reasons to believe that if you find an alien, he speaks like us, he's thinking about perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and being like us, he's thinking of God like us, he buries his dead with all kinds of uh, grave artifacts that'll be useful for the next life, et cetera, et cetera, or whatever, you know, as we see in, you know, the break off, you know, 60,000 years ago from our human ancestors, we look at that and, and we see these things, you know, the only thing you can possibly conclude is that 
Of course we have a transphysical soul. We can't reduce our linguistic processes, our mathematical processes, our religious intuitions, our desire for perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and being. We cannot reduce these. Even our conscience, as Newman showed many years ago, cannot be reduced to physical processes alone. And if that's the case, then something transphysical needs to have created something transphysical in us, namely our soul. And I think that's becoming more and more apparent. What's so interesting is there's these now these near-death experiences and some really good peer-reviewed medical studies of them, which demonstrate this very well. And so when you um, take a look at the formidable evidence uh, that we have a soul that is very likely to survive bodily death, that was created by God, I have no trouble saying, if you discover an alien and he's intelligent like us, has transcendental desires like us, has a sense of God like us, has a conscience like us, that alien was created by God because he has a transphysical soul because his activities cannot be explained by uh, physical processes alone. And I'll bet he has near-death experiences just like we do, and uh, that he has discovered that uh, consciousness will survive bodily death, just as we have in scientific and good peer-reviewed medical studies. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, that's the creation we have here on this earth. And, I mean, you look at that and you go, oh, that's astounding. Uh, who cares? But, you know, whether we're in the center of the galaxy, as I said, we couldn't be anyway in the center of the galaxy. Black hole would eat us up in two seconds. But uh, we're right in a nice position in the spiral where we've got a very comfortable spot. And that spot, of course, to me, uh, is the beginning of uh, civilization as I know it right now until I see evidence proving otherwise. So, uh, And if I do find evidence proving otherwise, no big deal. God created that alien too, and he knows it. That alien knows it. Father Spencer, that's awesome. I love those questions. All right, so yeah. now you got beamed up into an uh, alien spacecraft, and they said, <laughs> Father Spencer, we love what you're saying. We're going to give you one hour to ask us questions. What do you ask the aliens in terms of getting insight into this created world that right now we have limits in what we're able to discover or understand? Where would you take a conversation with an alien? I would take them right to the transcendentals, as I think St. Thomas Aquinas would have done. He, I would just ask him, well, uh, you know, do you think you have an unrestricted desire to know? And then, of course, if so, well, where do you think that came from? And then I would go through that series of questions. Well, no, what I'm then, wondering, Father, is like, would you, I'd ask about gravity. Like, what's gravity? Or I'd ask about the speed of light. Hey, is there some, do we understand light the right way? I mean, uh -huh. what about time travel? What about, you know, it? Uh, yeah. what's on the other side of a black hole or do you have any uh, like, Oh yeah. Very... I mean, all those questions are important <laughs> questions. I mean, you know, it depends on whether you want to start with the physics questions or you want to start with the metaphysical questions. Uh, you know, my preference is, you know, I'd like to learn a little bit about them and the metaphysical part. But if I wanted to ask, you know, the, the physics questions, the first thing is I'd pull out the quantum equations and I'd pull out the, uh, the um, uh, relativity equations 
and I would put it to them. I would say, okay, we have found that these equations are descriptive and explanatory of the universe as we know it. What have we left out from these two equations? That's the first question. Second, how do you put together um, you know, quantum and uh, relativity um, and uh, with you know, narrowing the gap of uncertainty um, that would be their indeterminacy that would be there, if possible. If and, and if not, is indeterminacy a part of our universe as you understand it? That would be, a, of course, a secondary question. A third question, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a big believer in wormholes as being the salvation for, um, you know, uh, travel, uh, you know, um, to distant parts of the universe uh, without having to go through uh, space-time because the problem is going into a wormhole and coming out of a wormhole and being in the wormhole, there's like 10,000 ways in which you could be utterly destroyed instantaneously <laughs> by any law of physics we currently understand. So I'm thinking, you know, I, I could ask them, well, gee, did you guys come through a wormhole? And if you did, uh, gee whiz, how'd you prevent yourself from being utterly, you know, uh, you know, obliterated <laughs> and and uh, maybe they have an answer but maybe they'll go you can't go through a wormhole without being obliterated i don't know but anyway right now obliteration looks like uh, the only uh, realistic you know way of dealing with wormholes there's got to be another way if there's an accelerated speed travel of doing this rather than a, a wormhole um there are other theories that people have for you know, um, hyperspace and so forth and so on. But um, a lot of these theories, I'll be honest with you, are as fanciful as they are factually based. Mm -hmm. So, um, but anyway, I, I certainly would be interested in in uh, supersonic uh, uh, transport of some sort or another. It wouldn't just be supersonic. It would uh, be speed of light trans uh, transport, you know. Uh, not just faster than the speed of sound. So um, all that would be very interesting to me. Uh, I would also be very interested, though, in their degree of civilization, their sense of morality, and where they think their sense of morality comes from. You know, I, mm -hmm. I drift into the metaphysical again. So, But yeah, there's all kinds of fascinating things from the physical uh, perspective that are out there, but also from the metaphysical perspective and uh, getting common ground on transcendence and, and metaphysics. I'll tell you one thing. I don't think the aliens would be agreeing with Dawkins' uh, earlier materialism. Of course, he shifted his position now. He says, I'm not an atheist anymore. I'm just an agnostic who leans uh, toward um, atheism. Well, let's just say, I don't think the aliens would be anywhere near Dawkins. I think they would wind up looking at that view as quite silly if they have the degree of, uh, of, uh, of uh, mathematical competency that, uh, and uh, physical discovery that we uh, think they might have in order to do the space travel that would be necessary to travel the immense distances uh, from another planet um, in another, well, just in another star, let alone another galaxy, um, you know, it would uh, require technology so far beyond us that I know one thing, if they had that technology, they could obliterate the earth in a single second. The fact that they don't obliterate the earth in a single second with that kind of technology means that they have a conscience and they will allow a weaker civilization 
uh, to live on. And I would like to talk to them about their conscience and where they think they got that from. And, um, and uh, to have that kind of a metaphysical discussion along with the discussion of physics. Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the state of Washington and in Idaho. I've had the privilege and pleasure of helping dozens of families in the last two and a half years discern and find a, a strategy, a path, and a plan to help their families find a whole new life in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. If I could be of service to you in that, I would love to. Please reach out drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Okay, back to Sound Insight. That's uh, Father Robert Spitzer joining me today on the program. And Father, did you ever think about we were going to talk about aliens? <laughs> no, I didn't actually. Uh, See? I mean, uh, I said, well, no, maybe your son asked you that, that he's a crafty son. I'll say that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, today, yeah. one of the reasons why Father Spitzer is on is to talk about the upcoming gala for Healing the Culture. It's happening on the 23rd and 24th of September. It's coming up at Holy Family in Kirkland on the 23rd. And you can go to healingtheculture.com and you can click right on the main page right there, the ability to sign up for uh, and to register to attend that gala at Holy Family in Kirkland. And then the next day at Post Fall in Post Falls, Idaho, mm -hmm. at the Trailhead Event Center. Again, on healingtheculture.com, you'll be able to sign up for that. And if you can't attend, if you're listening outside of those two local areas and you want to participate, you can participate virtually by getting a gala in the box. And you can do that also by clicking right on that selection on healingtheculture.com. So Father Spitzer, okay, let's go from outer space. Let's let's land that spaceship and let's stay a little bit more grounded here on Earth, okay? Sure. <laughs> okay, next question. <laughs> so uh, we had a uh, priest over our house for dinner the other day, and, and my son asked, if you could have dinner with any person alive on Earth right now, who would you have dinner with and why? Well, um, let's see. Um, from a uh, physics point of view, um, I would be very interested in having dinner um, with Thomas Banks, a very important physicist. I think he, he intrigues me uh, uh, very much and, uh, uh, you know, his positions on things, uh, both physical and, and even to some extent metaphysical. But he's a very fine physicist. He'd be an intriguing uh, fellow. I think, um, uh, of course, I would love to have uh, a dinner with Francis Collins, uh, the head of the Genome Project, uh, very much a, uh, a theist of the first water, um, and uh, he's very fascinating uh, person as well. Uh, comes at things from a biological point of view, and I think that would uh, be uh, be very fascinating. I think also I'd uh, you know if it were um, uh, from a more um, you know spiritual point of view. I'd like to have dinner with Pope Benedict. I mean, when I was a younger man, um, I, I used to be so intimidated. You know, I, I'd go over and visit my friend uh, Gottfried Kuster over at the, the Germanicum, and, I mean, at the uh, Teutonicum. And, um, you know, uh, there would uh, sit uh, Cardinal Ratzinger uh, at the table, and I would look and I'd go, oh, my gosh, if I have to sit down at that table He's going to ask me three questions and I'll be proved to heretic twice during lunch, you know, and I thought, oh, I better, you know, but of course he was always the most gracious and wonderful person. 
But, you know, being a, a sort of a, an elementary theologian, I was a nervous wreck. But, um, uh, at, uh, you know, today I, I would, you know, with all of his vast experience and seeing everything that uh, he has seen, I'd love to have a, a conversation with him. Um, you know, just not just about world events, but spiritual life in general. Um, I think he would be a, a very, very fine influence. And, uh, um, uh, you know, and not just from the, the fame and fortune point, well, no fortune, but uh, from the fame point of view, but, uh, you know, really, I think the, the spiritual depth point of view, I think, oh, gosh, there's some really uh, wonderful um, philosophers and metaphysicians out there who are also uh, tremendous people. But um, those are some of the ones that uh, I'd like to have dinner with. I'm, you know, uh, I'm not very, uh, you know, politicians don't do it for me. Um, and I'm not uh, that interested uh, in uh, a lot of the current uh, uh, politicians. But, you know, if I, uh, um, you know, I, I uh, would, you know, I'd, you know, I'd probably pick a couple of politicians that uh, uh, I think, you know, have a very good uh, pro-life position that would intrigue me. Uh, but, um, you know, that's where, uh, where I'd uh, probably, you know, maybe I'd have a luncheon list. You know, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> bring awesome. together you know a physicist, a biologist, a pope, and uh, maybe maybe one uh, a politician. You know, uh, uh, maybe uh, uh, somebody uh, with a military experience, like a Pompeo or something. But uh, anyway, Pompeo, but uh, something like that. So uh, uh, anyway, those are my well, Father Spitzer. You you kind of revealed here that there was someone that intimidated you a little bit when you sat down. Oh. With yeah. Oh, yeah, Cardinal Rauter, I like that. That's oh, good. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, he doesn't know how much he intimidated. But Godfrey Kusher would tell him, come on, come on, what's the matter with you? I, I said, oh, you know, that's Cardinal Ratzinger, you know, he, he's one of the brightest minds in the in the Catholic Church today, you know. I, I'm just trying to prevent being called a heretic, you know. He said, oh, stop it. So, of course, I would go over there, and he spoke English so well, I didn't have to worry about speaking perfect German. So it was, everything was great. You know, he, he, just a lovely, good, deep, wonderful, spiritual, brilliant man. Well, today I'm talking with Father Robert Spitzer. And if you want to gain more insight and wisdom from Father Spitzer, he is a prolific author, uh, including a, a set of four books that he wrote on Finding True Happiness, The Soul's Upward Yearning, God So Loved the World, and The Light Shines On in the Darkness, as well as uh, two amazing books called Escape from Evil's Darkness and Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives. Uh, Father Spitzer, I've appreciated your books uh, so much through the years. Um, I want to ask you um, mm -hmm. to speak into a couple of things that I think are pressing issues for a lot of Catholics today. So sure. first, let's stay in the church, and then we'll move as the church faces the world. So in the church mm -hmm. itself, um, there is a fellow Jesuit that you didn't mention potentially having lunch with or dinner mm -hmm. with. That would be Pope Francis. Now, Pope Francis... Oh. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't avoid Pope Francis. I mean, uh, okay. you know, I, I've actually tried to uh, to meet him uh, once, but uh, because of COVID, that just fell apart. Um, and, uh, um, you know, but uh, no, I wouldn't uh, avoid having uh, uh, lunch with Pope Francis. I think, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the reason I, I tend toward Benedict is because he is 
a theologian and a, a theoretical kind of a person. Pope Francis is, you know, a more practical kind of person and mm -hmm. a more, you know, what I would call politically oriented kind of a person, mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in his, uh, you know, um, you know, viewpoints. But no, I have a lot of things I would discuss with him, too. Um, well, and Father Spitzer, here's what I want to ask you about that. So yeah. um, so I see online and interact with so many Catholics that would self-identify as Orthodox, right? So they yeah. believe the fullness of the Catholic faith. They promote it, defend it, yeah. seek to understand it. And yet uh -huh. there's a point at which they often get divided into these camps where there's mm -hmm. almost no bridge between them. And that is the person and teaching and approach of Pope Francis. And so you mm -hmm. have folks that are, again, very traditional Orthodox in the living of their Catholic faith. And yet they have this sense of um, the Pope is taking us in a bad direction, is doing wrong things, et cetera. And then you have this other group who are saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That's the successor of St. Peter. That's the vicar of Christ on earth. Don't go there. You are departing from what you say is your actual true faith in, in living out the fullness of your faith. And good mm -hmm. luck trying to get these folks to find some kind of common ground um, mm -hmm. online. So, Father, I'm bringing you I'm a really difficult group. question. Oh, no, I'm in the second group, unquestionably. I, I, I definitely think that Pope Francis is the vicar of Christ. Mm -hmm. He's the duly appointed person, um, and that du duly appointed you know, mechanism, uh, the, the Holy Spirit is speaking through it. We've been guaranteed that. Uh, Satan is not going to be victorious uh, against the church. And so I think we absolutely, we have to, to follow him. But in all areas of prudential judgments, right? And you know what, uh, which is different from doctrine and ordinary magisterium and extraordinary magisterium. Prudential judgments, right? Concern, um, you know, when we're talking about, for example, the implementation of social doctrines. Um, and so the, the seven principles of, uh, of the, you know, the, the church is uh, social um, uh, teaching, uh, those seven principles. There are a lot of areas in which um, the church herself says, yeah, these are prudential judgments. These are not ordinary or extraordinary magisterium. You have the right to dissent. So if in an, a papal encyclical, you, you say, well, you ought to have, a, you know, a, um, uh, you know, a, your air conditioner on at a certain amount, or uh, you, you ought to have a carbon footprint of this amount. You can dissent from that. That's that's not a matter of ordinary magisterium or extraordinary magisterium. And the criteria for that are all set out uh, very definitely. And, uh, you know, do I agree with everything that I read in a social encyclical? No, I, I don't, because so much of it is implementation. And I respectfully disagree um, with that. And that we are entitled to do. But I don't think it's necessary to vilify the the person who extended the opinion that I disagree with. And I think he is the vicar of Christ. He is due uh, respect. Um, and so uh, I, I very much uh, think that, uh, yes, I, I give him the respect that is due. I think the Holy Spirit obviously is speaking uh, through him. I cannot believe that the Spirit is not speaking through him. But remember, 
you know, when you talk about ordinary and extraordinary magisterium, right, um, that's one thing where the spirit is speaking. But if you're talking about, um, you know, prudential judgments, there's no guarantee that the spirit is speaking in that, uh, that that's his best prudential that means coming from himself or the scientific experts he's he's uh, or other experts that he's using. That's their best human judgment. And I can dissent from that. And I have definitely dissented from that uh, because I think, you know, in some cases I have other views of economics and science, uh, other, uh, you know, access to studies that maybe, um, you know, which I respectfully uh, disagree um, with Pope Francis in certain judgments, but uh, you cannot vilify the, you know, the, uh, the, the pontiff, you can't vilify the vicar of Christ duly appointed uh, by the spirit working through the church. Uh, I find that to be profoundly, you know, uncatholic. That's a great answer, Father Spitzer. So, yeah. Father Spitzer, we're going to go from uh, okay, let's say intramuros in the in the walls within the church uh, issue mm-hmm. to now the church facing the world. Yeah. I think one of the most pressing issues comes back to something that healing the culture presents so profoundly and beautifully, which is mm-hmm. authentic human nature. Uh-huh. And you probably know where I'm headed, which is the denial of a human nature that is gendered. And so the mm-hmm. very profound and important truth that God made us male and female is mm-hmm. under attack in a, like a tidal wave and an onslaught of, of, um, of pressure and and policies and and now laws and from the medical mm-hmm. community what would you say to parents to catholics that are listening here about um the way in which we are to stand up with the the fullness of the the truth entrusted to us about human nature well um there are three approaches that you can take um one is a biological approach uh, the second is a theological approach, and the third is what I would call an emotional health uh, or psychological approach. And um, you know, to each to, to the, the the questions you raise. So first of all, um, uh, let's just take the the biological approach. There is no genetic basis, none, no brain physiological basis to uh, establish transgenderism as being part of human nature. So the idea of a man being trapped in a woman's body or a woman being trapped in a man's body, there is no biological basis or genetic basis for this. It simply is erroneous to assert anything else. At best then, it is a psychological wish it is not an intrinsic desire or an intrinsic or urgent motivating force from within as if it were biologically stimulated. So that's the first thing. So there is no physiological basis for transgenderism. There's some very good articles on this. Uh, you can, um, you might want to take a look at uh, um, an article by Richard Fitzgibbons, Dr. Richard Fitzgibbons and two other authors 
Uh, it was written in the National Catholic uh, Bioethics Quarterly about, oh, I'd say it's about 10 years old now anyway, um, but it's on um, sexual reassignment surgery. It's a very long article. I think it's about 60 pages or something, but well worth the read because it uh, breaks down a lot of these uh, different, um, you know, supposed biological bases. There's another one by Lawrence Mayer and um, Paul McHugh, um, two professors at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, they wrote a, uh, a study, oh, uh, I guess it was uh, maybe about six, seven years ago anyway. Um, and uh, it was, uh, again, uh, looking at the biological basis um, for transgenderism and pretty much saying this, uh, there's no way there's a biological basis for this. So let's just take that off the 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 um, the proverbial academic stage. Uh, the second thing is the theological basis for this. I don't have to, uh, you know, um, he made them male and female. He created them. Now, however you want to interpret that, you know, I think that's a very profound statement, not just biologically, but theologically. And I think, you know, there's a, you know, adequate justification um, for that in an, uh, not an encyclical, in a, um, a teaching, a letter uh, that was put forward by, I believe it was the Vatican Commission on Education. Um, uh, it was about, um, uh, again, about 10 years ago, he made the male and female is the name of the uh, letter. And you can just put Vatican, he made the male and female, and you can see the theological justification. And the position of our church is very clear on this. So I don't think I have to go into the theological, the emotional health um, dimension of it, um, you, know, you know, gets us to the real causes. What's the real cause of transgenderism? And I think the real causes are several. Um, uh, and they can be uh, and are frequently a blend of um, four major causes. First, in between 40 to 60 percent, depending on the uh, study you're using, um, 40 to 60 percent of the children, this is the pre-adolescents, who have a cross uh, gender confusion or have a desire uh, to you know, become the other sex, um, 40 to 60% have been physically or sexually abused as children. So that is a huge factor. And it, um, there's just keep this in mind. There's got to be anxieties that are associated with physical and sexual abuse. But oftentimes this is combined with a second major cause, namely significant anxiety in the household. So in the case of boys who want to become uh, girls, that uh, we see this, the anxiety level is on the mom in uh, the mother in the, in the household. Um, and the boy says, well, this is my fault that my mother is so anxious and my mother is so unhappy. Um, and she is unhappy, right? We're talking about a four or five-year-old here, right? She's unhappy because I'm the wrong sex. She wishes she had a girl and she really, um, it's the boy in me that she's upset about. If I just get this fixed, I'll make my mother happy and I will be happier. 
So, and it's the reverse with the girl, the anxiety on the part of the father. If I just get, he hates me being a female, rather have a boy, etc. So that is uh, oftentimes an, a secondary anxiety that's mixed in with um, oftentimes physical and sexual abuse. You put those two together and the storm is already brewing. Uh, a third major cause, at least probably in the, at least 50% of the cases, is um, latent homosexual desires becoming more and more explicitly manifest. And so an inability to handle that and thinking if I just become the other sex, that fixes it. I'm not, um, you know, going to be looking for the same sex. I'm looking for another, uh, you know, the regular, uh, uh, you know, I'll be quote unquote heterosexual once again. Again, we're looking at a kid's interpretation, which of course is undeveloped intellectually and emotionally. So that's a third major thing. And then oftentimes, you know, you do have parents who really do explicitly say, you know, I, I would have rather had a boy or a girl and you know, and the poor little kid has to live up to, you know, the expectation or the mother that dresses the little boy up in girls' clothes, et cetera, et cetera, and expresses, you know, even a, a female name for the little boy. Well, you put together all the anxieties that are associated with these behaviors um, to the little kid, right? Or in the case is, you know, the, the homosexual desires that might be there. You put them all together and you've got a massive ball of anxiety that is going on. Now, what, what, you know, what a therapist would tell you right away is the way to treat that is not to give the child what the child believes is the solution to this huge anxiety bomb that they are feeling uh, interiorly. In other words, if I just get a sex change, it'll all be fixed. The way out of it, right, is going to happen by getting therapy to help the child see the, the solution is not changing your sex, right? Because if you can show them that the anxiety can be solved without having a sex change, they just go back to their biological sex. Uh, and by the way, about 81% with um, no therapy or minimal therapy will just go back to their biological sex. If you don't pressure them into getting a sex change or keep telling them that the solution is a sex change when they're pre-adolescence, right? Because if they move into their adolescence believing that the sex change is the answer, the odds of you dissuading them at that juncture are very difficult. But if you can handle this and get the therapy there before uh, adolescence, you can have successful, oftentimes very successful um, alleviation of cross-gender confusion, as well as um, a solution uh, to the anxiety problem. Now, here's the problem of the sex change. Let's suppose, and this is why I think it's medically unethical. Um, the reason is, is because let's suppose um, the child says, I want the sex change, the parent accommodates, you know, everybody's accommodating, pushing them along. Well, will they feel relief after the sex change? Yes, they will. They're going to feel a great um, relief of the anxiety for three to five years after the surgery. But if, uh, about five years after the surgery, 
the anxieties will re-emerge, almost like a cancer that re-emerges for the second time with a, you know, kind of a great viciousness, right? It comes right out and it starts really manifesting itself powerfully. And of course, then that means that the sex change was not the solution to the anxiety. All of a sudden, the anxiety reappears with the sex change, which causes buyer's remorse. In other words, the person now, this is the post-adolescent, now says, oh, wait a minute. Gosh, this, you know, I still feel all these terrible anxieties. I've, I've permanently you know, maimed myself. There's no turning back. Um, and now the buyer's remorse starts. And at this juncture, uh, what you find is that um, the rate of depression and anxiety just accelerates tremendously. 20 years after the surgery, um, as, I'm, I'm sorry, 10 years after the surgery is, has been completed, you can expect to find between a 19 times to 20 times increase in the suicide rate from the general population. 19 times, that's 1,900% or 2,000% increase in suicides um, uh, for those who have had the sexual reassignment surgery. Do you think that's ethical? I don't think that's ethical. I think that's medically very unethical. And I think, honestly, we need to reflect not only as you know, a medical and academic community, we need to reflect as a nation, look straight on at the consequences of what is going on here. All the uh, anxieties that we are leaving untreated by giving a false solution, which may make some doctors a whole lot of money and may make some um, uh, 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 post-adolescents and parents happy for five years, I'm telling you, there is a strong increase that they will not be happy after five years after the surgery. And so, um, uh, you know, again, I caution people that this is a false solution and that much of what is going on here is not psychologically or medically warranted, that in fact, this is politically motivated and it's motivated uh, in my view uh, toward a, a subjectivist view of human identity, which brings me into a whole other question, which I won't get into right now. But no, I don't think it's a good idea. Spiritually, it's a lousy idea. Emotionally, it's a lousy idea. And there's no biological basis for it whatsoever. So I'm uh, against it. I challenge it ethically. And I think it should be absolutely... Um, uh, you know, looked at soberly, scientifically, psychologically, we need to depoliticize this issue, get rid of that subjectivist identity issue, and come back to looking at some facts and what's really good for our young people and what's really good for our culture and nation. That's Father Robert Spitzer. Father Spitzer, it's uh, it's um, it's difficult to overstate the value of what you're talking about here today, and the desperate need we have for voices like yours to. 
be able to help bring clarity into places of confusion, especially where there's so much harm at stake. Folks, uh, we're close to the end of our time with Father Spitzer, so I'm going to encourage you to go to magiscenter.com, where you can get articles and books and blogs and so much else that Father Spitzer and his team have done on science, reason, and faith, Jesus in the church, happiness and suffering, and spiritual and moral growth. But if you want to have a chance to interact with Father Spitzer, enjoy him in person, I'm going to encourage you to sign up for the Healing the Culture Gala coming up on September the 23rd and the 24th. So that's just a short uh, time from now. On the 23rd, happening at Holy Family in Kirkland. And then on the 24th, I'll be there on the 24th, Father Spitzer. I have the privilege of being the MC for that event. So oh, get good. ready. More difficult questions, Father oh, Spitzer, good. coming your way. Bring your son. <laughs> I know. I should bring my whole family, my yeah. kiddos. They uh, they took yeah. tickets at the last gala. So oh, we'll, uh, we'll get them involved somehow. And that's at the Trailhead Event Center. And again, you can find out about how to sign up for and register for those at healingtheculture.com, healingtheculture.com. And just click on right on the home page there you'll see the gala 2022 father spitzer uh we are out of time but not mm -hmm. out of insight father i again <laughs> i always appreciate the wisdom that you bring uh you're the easiest interview i have you're the most intimidating but you're the easiest i just <laughs> oh, ask good. a, I throw a question out there and just sit back and just <laughs> drink it all in so father spitzer <laughs> it was awesome i really appreciate the time you've given me today Oh, thanks so much, uh, Dr. Kern, and just always a pleasure to be with you.